Let's pray. Lord, you are great. And thank you so much for the surprise privilege of being able to worship you. We thank you so much for revealing enough of yourself to where we can engage you and we can worship you and enjoy you and express our gratitude and our observations and our wonder of you this morning. Lord, I want to pray that this morning will not be routine or mundane. I pray that this morning will be uh, life-altering. And I pray that you'll guard us from just going through the motions and just attending a place. Lord, we pray this morning that we will truly be a people instead. Pray that we will be a people that are captivated with Christ, that are eager to grow in our understanding and appreciation of what you've done in his person and his work. And Lord, we pray that the outcome of that will be that our lives are changed and our relationships changed, our speech, our actions, our priorities. But we pray that they'll change from the inside out, from the heart outward. And we pray that that heart will be changed and just transformed to be just, just a truly satisfied heart in Christ. Lord, all those things that I pray this morning for this people, I pray also for, you, for Wesley Methodist Church this morning. Pray that they are enjoying you. Pray for the person bringing the word this morning that you will speak in and through them. Pray that they've been wrecked this week as they prepare to preach. I pray that that people are ready to hear a word from you. Lord, guard them also from attending. Create in them a, just a people that are breathing and thriving and flourishing and moving and bumping into each other and are engaging each other and that are salty and bright in between Sundays. Lord, we pray that whatever way possible that we can partner with them in ministry, that you will give us insight into that, even if it's not um, tangible, if it's an intangible relationship that folks in this room may know some of those folks that we never have a spirit of competition between each other. Lord, guard us from that man-centered, pitiful mindset, but that we are truly building each other up and partners in a shared ministry and a shared commission. Lord, we also, lastly, I just want to thank you for bringing our Kazakhstan crew back. Personal thanks as a husband and um, as a friend to a lot of folks and a brother to a lot of folks. We are just grateful for their return. We're thankful also for their undoing while they were gone. We thank you for giving them a glimpse into what you're doing in the far corners of the world, giving them an opportunity to minister to those who are on the field. Lord, we pray right now that you will just nourish them, that you will fuel them with the gospel, and that you will um, just make them, make in them people who are about your glory. We love you so much, Lord. We turn this time over to you. Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to John 11, if you would. <clears throat> Wednesday nights, we are working through the book of Revelation. And we come in here at 6, and we usually go till 7 or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, depending on how complicated it gets. But we try and end up about 7. And, but I usually stick around. If I don't have a... Um, if I don't have some sort of elders meeting or something like that afterwards, I usually stick around and talk to folks for 30 minutes, 45 minutes after that. A lot of times by the time I get home, it's 8.15, 8.30. And I'm notorious with Christy anyway for coming in the house and grabbing the little clicker for the television at 8.30, even 8.45, and sitting down and turning that TV on and watching the last 15 minutes of anything. I mean, it can be nothing. And I can surrender to the last 15 minutes and actually even enjoy that and be satisfied with that. Christy cannot understand it. She wants the whole story or none at all. But me, I'm okay with the bottom line. In fact, I can watch the last 15 minutes and kind of make up the first 45. <laughs> and really be satisfied with a little bit of relaxation there. 
But you know when it comes to the things of God, the last 15 minutes just won't do. They just won't do. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to go way back early on in the story. We're going to go to a part of the story that I must confess has been neglected for most of my Christian journey. It's a place in Leviticus that is dusty and crusty and has cobwebs in it. We're going to go back in there. Don't turn back there yet because we're still in John 11. But we're going to go back to Leviticus and we're going to look through the lens of Leviticus at our passage in John chapter 11. But here's where I want to help you understand why we're going back to Leviticus. If you miss the first part of the story, then you miss everything about context. It'd be like reading the last four or five chapters of a book. You can get some part of the story, or you can be like me watching the last 15 minutes of a show, but you just don't get the whole thing. Now, it's hard to start at the beginning of a story. Have you ever picked up a new book, and then you, you climb into that new book, and you're spending some time getting to know the characters, getting to know the context? but then you can savor and enjoy the rest of the story. That's what we're going to do today. It may be a little bit cumbersome getting to know some of the people and the the, uh, context and the interaction, but what we're going to learn today is we're going to learn context, setting. We're going to hear the music. We're going to see the lights. We're going to hear the sounds as we see the nation of Israel going about its daily activities in the system of sacrifice. Today we're going to look at John chapter 11, Beginning in verse 44, focusing primarily on verses 50 through 53 through the lens of Leviticus. Let's start in John 11, verse 44. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. For the sake of context, we've been here the last three, uh, four months or so, in John chapter 11, enjoying this picture of Lazarus being called from death to life. One of the things that we've enjoyed most about it is seeing that Lazarus' situation of his deadness, his being sealed in a tomb, even his stench is such a beautiful image and metaphor of our condition apart from Christ and before Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and like Lazarus sealed in that tomb four days stinking, That's a great image of what we are when Christ calls us from death to life. So we've enjoyed that imagery the last few weeks, but we're climbing in as the story continues. Verse 45. Therefore, because Christ called Lazarus from death to life, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, because Jesus had called Lazarus from death to life, And therefore, because some of the Jews, many of the Jews believed in Christ because of that work, and because some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What we considered last week is that these guys weren't concerned about their place in their nation as they were concerned about their specific individual place and station and lot and influence and identity. And they see the person and work and message of Christ completely undoing that. One of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, if you remember last week, we introduced us to this passage where John then goes on and comments on what Caiaphas has said. This is John, the writer of the book of John, who's now providing commentary on what Caiaphas has just said. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but unbeknownst to him, unknowingly, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. So the reality is what he spoke was absolute truth, but it was spoken through the mouth of a man that spoke in ignorance. In verse 52, if he will die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad over space and time. That last phrase is for me because I know it's true, because I know here 2,000 years later that that finished work that was prophesied through an ignorant man, that we're on the receiving end of that. So those 
children of God who are scattered abroad are gathered into one over space and time. So from that day on, they plan together to kill him. Turn to the book of Leviticus. It's over toward the front of your Bible. You can turn to the first chapter. We're really going to be looking at a couple different passages later on in the book, but the first chapter may give you kind of a broad overview of some things. What we're going to do right now, if this last week we just kind of crawled up to the lip of the canyon and we're stuck on the word expedient, this week we're going to go down into the canyon of truth. We're going to climb down in there. We're going to put on our um, repelling harnesses and we're going to go right down in and climb into the truth canyon of Leviticus. Where is the book of Leviticus in the story? Let me give you a little bit of background first. God has called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. They've been in bondage. They've been in slavery to Egypt for a long time. He calls them to lead them out. Moses leads them out. And beginning, if, if you're in that very first chapter of Leviticus, look on the opposite page in Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. God has given them some very specific instruction of how to build a tabernacle where he would dwell. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is about 1,400 years or so before Christ. And understanding where this story in Leviticus plays out in things is to understand that we're at the point where God is going to dwell with his people. By his divine plan, among all peoples of the earth, an eclectic God. That's where the word, this scary word, I know that it's kind of been talked about lately, the scary word elect comes from. It's in the Bible. Our God is an eclectic God among all peoples in the world. He chose Israel to be his people. There was nothing in Israel that rated it. There was nothing in them that made them an ideal people. In fact, for hundreds of years after that, they proved that they're no different from everybody else. But God delivers them from Egypt and dwells with them at the end of Exodus. Then the book of Leviticus explains how God can dwell with them. It explains how a God that is holy can dwell among an unholy, unclean people. Now, before we climb in, I want to offer a qualifier. Man, I, I began the journey of faith when I was six. I know for most of my journey, what I would define, what I valued would be, is does it work? Does this work? Is this practical? Give me something that's practical to help me with my marriage, uh, to help me with my relationships, to help me with my work, to help me with things that I do, that I'm about. <laughs> I, that, that's what I was defined by. And I want you to appreciate this. In case you're driven by relevance too. Relevance is not a bad thing. But in case you're driven by that and you're thinking, dude, I really don't want to hear about Leviticus. I want to hear about something that's going to help my marriage or my current struggle that I'm in. You should know that in the book of Leviticus, before God addressed how to get in along in community with your wife or your neighbor or your friend. He addressed how to get along with him. Before he ever went there, he addressed how do you abide and dwell with me, a holy God. That's a great treatment that we should surrender to realizing that our marriages and our problems and our situations are changed first in heart. And then, unless you want band-aids on them, if you really want them to be transformed, they surrender to that. They're changed first in the heart, and then they work their way out. Any other treatment of marriage or money or work or family are just temporary, and they're just band-aids. So, summarize what this message is about. It's about Christ. It's about Christ, and if you'll surrender to it, it'll change your heart and work on you from the inside out. First of all, Let's look at Leviticus. I want to offer three things to you this morning. Three things about this system of sacrifice that help us understand John chapter 11, verses 50 through 53. Here's the first. In Leviticus, this first thing I want to introduce you to is this system of sacrifice was elaborate and cumbersome. Okay, we 
we're going to climb into that together for a little bit. I hope you're ready for that. First of all, there were five different types of sacrifice introduced in the first six chapters of the book of Leviticus. First of all, and this is not in the specific order that they're introduced, I'm going to introduce you to these five, not in the order in the, in the book, but in the order that I'll explain in a moment. First of all, there's the sin offering. The sin offering covered unknown sins and sins of uncleanness. Okay, cool. There's the guilt offering. This one covered um, also unknown sins and known sins, but this one was more about restitution. If you wronged a holy God, you got to pay him back with interest. That's what it's about. The guilt offering is about um, restitution. The third offering was the burnt offering, and this one also always accompanied the sin offering. And this one was a representation. The sacrifice itself was a representation from the animal kingdom. The next was the grain offering. And this one, as you would expect, is a representation from the plant kingdom. Burnt offerings and grain offerings, the emphasis on both of those was on being completely consumed on the altar. Completely consumed. The word was called sublimation. Any you chemistry guys that really get into chemistry, you know what sublimation is. It's basically where a solid turns to a gas without going through an intermediate liquid state. So this is sublimation where the, the sacrifice is placed on the altar and through fire it just goes and it turns into smoke and the emphasis on it being a sweet aroma to God that he savors. And then there's the peace offering. This is the only offering that the worshiper ate with the priests. Some of the other offerings, different parts of it were eaten by the priests, but this is the only offering that was shared by the worshiper with the priests, and it's a picture of communion with God. Now, here's why I shared these five offerings in this progression. There's a progression of the offerings from outside the tabernacle into the very presence of God and into actual communion with God. Here's the progression. The sin and guilt offerings made you clean. The sin and guilt offerings made you clean, and they, in essence, escorted the worshiper into the tabernacle. Now, he didn't go in, but his offering did. His substitute went in. And it escorted in and made him clean. The burnt offering and grain offerings made you holy. And that actually, through sublimation, brought you into the very presence of God as he enjoyed your substitute being burned and consumed and sublimated in your place. And then the peace offering brought you into communion with God. The sin offering and guilt offering made you clean, got you into the tabernacle. The burnt offering, grain offering made you holy and actually brought you into the presence of God. And the peace offering then brought you to sit at the table with God. Now, before I continue, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks here and understanding John 11, verses 50 through 53, this perfect sacrifice of Christ. Realize that all five of these were achieved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why Leviticus is so wonderful, because it helps us understand what Christ did. All those things were achieved in that finished work. Now, sacrifices. Sacrifices were to be made for unknown sins, for swearing oaths, for deceiving a companion, for robbery, extortion, lying, for losing something that someone entrusted to you, for touching an unclean thing. Let's talk about uncleanness for a minute. Someone became unclean if they came in contact with creatures with a divided hoof, like a camel, or, or, or uh, without a divided hoof, excuse me, like a camel, or a rabbit, or a pig. Fish without scales were unclean. Eagles, vultures, buzzards were unclean. Falcons and ravens were unclean. Ostriches, owls, seagulls, hawks, storks, herons, bats, winged insects that walk on all fours were all considered unclean. Touching any of these or touching a dead carcass made you unclean. So touching any of those creatures, a lot of them we wouldn't want to touch but in the first place, but if you were to bump into one, a falcon, oops, you're unclean. Whatever walks on paws is considered unclean. Your dog bumps into you. Bam, you're unclean. The mole, the mouse, the lizards, geckos, crocodiles, we certainly wouldn't want to bump into that, are all unclean. Any of those things 
that even touches any of the earthenware, the pots that you cook in, drink from, and that you, you, know, you function with, makes them unclean, and you got to break them. Man, whatever crawled on its belly or walked on all fours or had many feet was considered unclean. Turn to Leviticus chapter 11. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 11, starting in verse 44. Why all the detail? God, I, you know, when I'm hearing all these details about all these different critters, all these different things that are clean and unclean, these things that make you clean and unclean, well, just, God, I want to understand why all the detail. Why so specific? In verse 44, let's start there. God speaking, he says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth. And here's why he did all this. To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. And between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. That's why he bothered with all the detail. To make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Okay, let's continue. A woman who gave birth to a boy was unclean for seven days. A woman that gave birth to a girl was unclean for 14 days. Now for the life of me, I don't understand that. Boys are nasty little creatures, so I can't understand why, they, why she'd be unclean for, for seven days after a boy, but that's God's plan. She was also unclean during her menstrual period and for a period of time afterwards. There are two whole chapters in the book of Leviticus dedicated to leprosy and the uncleanness associated with it. Someone who had some sort of discharge from the body made a person unclean. Now, we can get real creative there, but we don't really need to. Just think about a sore that you had that wouldn't heal, and you have pus coming out. Okay? Can we say that? Pus? Yeah? <laughs> Preaching? Can we have that imagery? I think we need to, because God has introduced us to that imagery. If you have some sort of wound that's not healing, or let's say you just have a snotty nose, and you got some sort of weird green stuff coming out of your nose. Anyone who touches that person, that person's unclean, and anyone who touches that person becomes unclean. If that person is talking with you and telling you about how bad they feel and a little piece of spit comes out, boop, and it lands on you, you become unclean. Every saddle the person touches, every bed, every chair, every clay pot or jar, they are now all considered unclean. And then, after that snotty nose is healed up, you feel better, you have seven days of cleansing before that person with the discharge is able to take turtle doves or pigeons to the tabernacle and give them to the priest for offering. Why? Why in the world? Man, that's crazy. Why in chapter 15, verse 15, it says, so the priest offers them the turtle doves and the pigeons to make atonement on his behalf. To make atonement. That word means to make amends, to make reparation. A good word that we may be familiar with is to almost to apologize. It's like the priest saying, God, I'm sorry that this unclean critter has had a snotty nose for 30 days. But they're clean now. And they want to come back into fellowship with you, a holy God, this unclean creature, through this offering that will be sublimated. He wants to come back into fellowship with you. If a man and a woman lie together, husband and wife, they are unclean also until evening. All of this, you're already in chapter 15. All of this, starting in verse 31. All these rules are given. All these details are given. So you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness. Why? So that. You know I love so that. Here's a big fat so that. So you keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness. By defiling my tabernacle that is among them. So they won't die. 
You may not think a snotty nose is a big deal, but compared to holiness, it's a big deal. The complexity and drama and struggle of this cleanliness and uncleanliness thing and this holiness and unholiness thing was a thorough teacher and it served a wonderful purpose. Turn to chapter 2. We're going to climb into a little bit of that purpose. I want you to taste what I've been eating the last few weeks. Leviticus chapter 2. If you have the New American Standard, you can follow along with me. If you don't, it probably would be difficult to follow along with me. Just listen. Listen. Leviticus chapter 2. Before I read, I want you to imagine being the worshiper. Imagine being the family or the individual that is preparing this offering to take to the priest or this sacrifice. This is the grain offering. Now, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it its handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord by fire. Now when you bring an offering of grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made in the griddle, it shall be a fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. You shall break it into bits and pour oil on it. It's a grain offering. Now if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, not a griddle, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring in the grain offering, which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest then shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion, shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in, in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It's a grain offering. The priest shall offer up in smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. Man, I don't know about you, but that's complicated. I mean, is that complicated? Can you imagine mama in the kitchen? Can you imagine mama in the kitchen preparing? Now, did I cook that on a griddle? What did he say about cooking it on a pan? I got to put salt in something. I got to do something with something else. Man, that is overwhelming. Try and imagine being the per person making the sacrifice. That's just one sacrifice. Imagine being mama in the kitchen. Or imagine being husband watching mama in the kitchen. Man, sometimes we have a hard time just putting dinner on the table. And we got microwaves. And we got pre-cooked food. But we're going to eat on the other side of that. That's at least something that's going to feed us there in a few minutes. This is not for dinner. This is for worship. Man, that makes Sunday morning complications pale in comparison, doesn't it? Brushing a few kids' fangs and brushing their hair and getting them looking decent. That's nothing compared to that. That's complicated, man. And here's the thing. If you didn't get it right, you could die. Man, that's what the nation of Israel dealt with for 1,500 years. We're oblivious to that. We've never had to deal with that. Let's look at chapter 3. Now, we looked at chapter 2, chapter two through the lens of someone who's making the offering. Okay? Bummer. Complicated. Whoo! Mama in the kitchen is hacked. Man, husband's trying to stay out of the way. Complicated. <laughs> chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 through the lens of the priest. Now, as I was reading this, I'm, you know, being a pastor, I'm thinking, okay, what must it have been like for the priest? Listen to chapter 3 through the eyes of the priest. 
Now, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he's going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. That's where it gets turned over to the priest, right there. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood around the altar. From the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord is from the flock, he shall offer it male or female without defect. If he's going to offer a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and slay it before the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons get turned over to them at that point. So they shall sprinkle the blood around the altar. From the sacrifice of peace offerings, he shall bring as an offering by fire to the Lord its fat, its entire fat tail, which he shall remove close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys, and the fat that's on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, then the priest shall offer it up and smoke on the altar as food, as an offering by fire to the Lord. Moreover, if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head and slay it before the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron, it gets turned over to them at that point, shall sprinkle his blood around the altar. From it he shall present his offering as an offering by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, on the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as food. An offering by fire for a soothing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. Man, imagine what it must have been like for the priest. Every offering was different. And depending on what sort of critter you brought to be offered, it was different. And if you didn't get it right, you died. Man, that is a huge bummer. He had this guy, this priest had to be part butcher, part coroner. And part priest, he had to know all the insides, what's what. Man, I wouldn't know a liver from a kidney. But the priest had to know all that stuff. And if he got it wrong, he could die. Man, what an unbelievable system. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. Why all the detail? Why all the baggage? Why so cumbersome? Why so difficult? This whole system of sacrifice served a wonderful purpose that we may miss. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. This complicated system served a purpose so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. The burden of this system and the complexity of the system did something to the Israelites. And it did something to the Israelites that may not have happened to us. All the effort, all the work gave them a white hot awareness of what was holy and what was unholy. It gave them a supernova appreciation of what was clean and what was unclean because they lived it every day. And they had to go through this. We just read two chapters in 10 minutes. They lived that every day. Oh, man, there's a gecko in my clay pot. I'm off to the pot store again. God, what a bummer. How hard that must have been. Is this something that was developed and cultivated through 1,500 years of this sacrificial system in the Israelites, is it missing in us? Is it missing in us? Are we able to distinguish between the holy and the profane? Are we able to distinguish between the clean and the unclean? Or do we realize what we are? Do we see ourselves as clean? Man, it's all good. Or do we truly see ourselves for what we really are apart from Christ? We didn't have to make daily or weekly trips to the tabernacle or to the pot store. We didn't deal with the frustration of the holy dwelling and privilege of the holy dwelling among the unholy. 
if we didn't have to give the best of our flock every day. I've been thinking about what this must have been like for the New Testament church. By the New Testament church, the Jews were spread all over the Roman Empire. Okay, and all these letters like that Paul wrote, for example, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Romans, all those letters went to churches that were a mixture of Gentiles and now believing Jews. And I've wondered what it must have been like to be a Gentile sitting in a worship service where one of these things, one of these letters are read or a gospel is read and you hear that Jew sitting next to you groaning and going, oh, 1,500 years of a heritage of sacrifice and now I'm seeing that the final sacrifice has been made. Yes, let me tell you about this Gentile brother. Let me tell you about what was achieved on the cross. Because I had the sweet benefit of being there for the first 45 minutes. Let me tell you how this will rock the whole story for you from here on. What a privilege it must have been to sit and worship with the believing Jew. But you know what? I'd love to have him here, but we have this full book. We have this book that will take us there if we'll but eat it. Those guys must have just groaned hearing this story unfold. Israel had something that we don't have. They had a daily reminder of their wretchedness. They had a daily reminder of their uncleanness and the distance and distinction between the holy and the unholy and the clean and the unclean. It's a 1,500-year lesson that we may have missed. Here's what happens if you miss it. If you miss it, you can be guilty of taking the cross for granted. If you miss out on the distinction, you can be guilty of thinking that you deserve Christ. If you miss out on this distinction, this 1,500-year lesson that through eating Leviticus, we can get some taste of. If you miss out on that, you can be guilty of taking sin far too lightly. But if you can, through Leviticus, vicariously climb in and worship with the Israelites, If you can imagine being mama in the kitchen preparing the sacrifice and the get-go crawls on the pot. Ah! If you can vicariously imagine what worship was like with them, then we can, by grace, get the same thing that they had. We can be fine-tuned and we can have an awareness of sin. And then we can begin to understand holiness. Then we can begin to distinguish. One of the things that surprises me I know I've been guilty of this before. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Someone had a great question about the millennial reign and what the nations will be doing and those that don't believe in Christ. And um, Someone asked a question. It was a great question. Will they be hiding out in caves or what? You know, will the, those guys that reject Christ and that the minute Satan's let out after a thousand years, they go right back to him. You know? They said, No. Man, the evil are not like Mad Max, wearing leather and riding dune buggies around everywhere. Man, that's not the evil and the wicked. They might be evil and wicked, but the evil and wicked that will reject Christ and will follow Satan the minute he's let out of prison, they're a good neighbor. They're good citizens. They might even be good friends. But they've rejected the finished work of Christ and the person of Christ. That's what makes them wicked If you miss this, what the nation of Israel went through, snotty noses that can result in death before holiness. If you can appreciate that, then you can begin to see the guilty in the morning mirror. That's what we get if we will but eat Leviticus. This system is tedious. I just gave you a snapshot this morning. It's tedious. I've been in here for weeks, and... You know, I, 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 when I get nervous about stuff, when I'm really laboring over stuff, I eat. And I, the last three weeks or so, I've been in the kitchen all day. I mean, yesterday afternoon, I ate so much Halloween candy, I got sick. I didn't even tell Christy about that. I'm so nervous about today. The kids, like, where'd all my candy go? This thing is tedious. It's hard work. I've been laboring in it for weeks. And here, here's what I was thinking as I was laboring. When, when it, I was like, man, when's this going to be over? When are we going to move on to John 12? And that's when it occurred to me, that's the heart's cry of an Israelite. When will this be over? 
Surely God won't dwell with man forever like this. When will this be over? When will Messiah come? That aching, that yearning is something that we can miss if we won't taste of it. I have two more things to share with you, and I promise you they're not that thorough. But they're no less important. Here's the second thing regarding the system of sacrifice. It was expensive. It was elaborate and it was cumbersome. Secondly, it was expensive. If you're a quick reader, look in Leviticus with me at the first chapter and get ready to do some quick jumping. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. Look at verse 10. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. Turn to chapter 3, verse 1. Now, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he's going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect. Look at verse 6. But if his offering for sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord is from the flock, he shall offer it male or female without defect. I'm not going to stop right there because we, we still don't get the point. Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 3. If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt to the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect. Chapter 4, verse 23. If his sin which he's committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. Verse 32. But if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female without defect. Chapter 5, verse 15. If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect. Verse 18. If he's then to bring to the priest a ram without defect. Chapter 6, verse 6. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect. You don't have to be a geneticist are a rancher to know that that's a bummer of a system. If you're a cattle owner or a shepherd and you own this beautiful flock of sheep and you take the best of that flock and you slice that, you cut their throat every day, you're going to have a pretty homely herd for long. <laughs> that's not genetics at its best right there. And you could imagine that this must have been like removing a pound of flesh from the nation of Israel. 1,500 years of that. Don't give me your homely leftovers. Give me your best without defect. It must have been crippling over time for a society that thrives and survives on crops, sheep, goats, and cattle. And then here's the thing, though. Not only was the best animal demanded from the herd or the flock. But the best that that sheep or cow or bull had to offer was demanded. Their very lives were demanded. Their blood was demanded. Is there anything more valuable than blood? Luke is seven. He and I were in the, out in the driveway while Christy was gone this last week and and um, he had a Cub Scout meeting. And we're racing to get out the door. And he's, I'm, I'm racing to get out the door. He's already out there riding his scooter up and down the driveway. And he's like, Daddy, I, I got the car door open. and Because we're, we're about to be late. He said, Daddy, let me make one more trip. I'm like, okay. He makes a trip down the driveway and comes up the neighbor's driveway and just takes a spill and just wipes himself out. He, he gets a big abrasion on his, on his uh, elbow right here. And it's not that deep. It wasn't like it required you know, stitches or anything, but it, the surface area of it resulted in a lot of blood. He went berserk. And I said, Luke, it's not that bad. I've had wounds like that before. It's not that bad. Calm down. He said, but Daddy, I've never seen this much blood. Even a seven-year-old knows that when you see blood rushing out of you, you better do something about it because that is your life. That's the most expensive or most valuable thing that you own when that begins vacating, you better do something about it. The sacrificial system was elaborate and it was cumbersome, but it was also expensive. 
We're going to spend some time in Hebrews, but I want to share one verse with you. Don't even turn there, just jot it down. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Sin is expensive, and the payment for that sin is the most valuable thing that you could possibly imagine. Your very lifeblood. The last thing, the system of sacrifice was gruesome. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I want to share a couple other verses with you. You may jot these down. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 says, The soul who sins will die. That's pretty straightforward, wouldn't you say? The soul who sins will die. A few verses later in verse 20 it says, the person, in case you might get soul mixed up with something else, the person who sins will die. Romans chapter 6. If you're a New Testament guy, you don't get in the Old Testament very often, we, we got something for you from the New Testament also. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. This system was gruesome and it demanded death. Doesn't that seem extreme to you? If we're honest, as human to human, doesn't that seem extreme? When you're imagining Adam and Eve in the garden, God tells Adam, you know, don't eat from that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to eat from that. And Eve says, hey, take a bite, Adam. That the result would be that from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Death for a bite of a piece of fruit? Doesn't that seem extreme? seems extreme that he would treat uncleanness as being just a snotty nose also. And the reason that is is because we do not understand holiness. But here's what Leviticus is about that helps us understand John chapter 11. Here's why the penalty is especially appropriate. When a holy God, by grace, decides to reveal himself to an unholy people, and yet not only reveal himself to them, but dwell with them. When he decides to dwell with them in an unclean place, essentially what's happening is you have two completely incompatible, completely contrary realms colliding and coexisting. And uncleanness and holiness, the problem is, those are contagious. You remember our rules we looked at for the person with a discharge of some sort? You touch a saddle. Oh, it's unclean. You spit on somebody. Oh, you're unclean. Uncleanness and unholiness is contagious. Holiness, on the other hand, isn't contagious. It must be earned. And it must be purchased. And here's the reality. Whenever holiness is going to dwell with the unholy, for that unholy to be reckoned holy, something is going to die. That's the only way they can reconcile those two incompatible realms where holiness can dwell with unholiness. Is something is going to die. Uncleanness and unholiness and sin and wickedness is that grave. And holiness is that high and lofty. It takes death. To reconcile the two. When the unholy collides with the holy, something is going to die. I'll leave you with an image from Leviticus chapter 10 of that very last point. Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, had two sons, Nadab, and, or at least these two sons, and Abihu. They were high priests or priests in the temple or the tabernacle. And in chapter 10, verse 1, here's a picture, an image of holiness and unholiness colliding. Let's start with the holiness first, or the unholiness. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord. Unprescribed fire. They'd given back to the Lord what, the God, what God hadn't asked for, and what God hadn't demanded. Seems harmless, seems kind of like a snotty nose. Or a bite out of a piece of fruit. Come on now. Can that be that bad? 
They offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And here's what happened. Here's where the holy responds. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. They were sublimated and they died before the Lord. Aaron's sons were unholy and unclean in their offering to the Lord. And instead of a holy God receiving their offering, a holy God. If we want to understand holiness' response to unholiness, made them the offering and actually consumed them by the fire that would have consumed a proper offering. They became the offering. When the holy collides with the unholy, something is going to die. When Caiaphas unknowingly, ignorantly, shared this prophecy in John chapter 11. He was sharing the truth that one holy one would be offered as both the sacrifice and the sacrificer. And that he would reconcile holiness dwelling with the unholy for all time. This 1500 year system of sacrifice that it's so tedious and so cumbersome in the effort, in the work, in the chore, in the expense of taking the best from your flock, in the gravity of it, that it even demanded your very lifeblood. In all those things, those things help us appreciate and wonder at what God has completed forever in the person and work of Christ. As a result of looking through this lens, we should adore Christ more. As a result of looking through the lens, we should be more satisfied with Him. We should contemplate Him more. We should enjoy Him more. We should cherish Him more. We should boast of Him more and His finished work. That's our call. That's our privilege that's worship. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you will take this meager offering, trying to expose 1,500 years worth of um, teaching to a people that may not appreciate it and may not understand it. Lord, I pray that just by grace that each of us in some way today can appreciate what Christ has done more. In some way today that we can grow more satisfied today with His work and the fact that we don't have to visit a tabernacle or a temple, but the work is finished. Lord, I pray that as a result of that, that we will savor Christ more, that we will enjoy Christ more We'll appreciate Him more. And that as a result of all that, that will bring glory to You in the way that we live and the way we love. Thank You so much for this rich picture in this tedious, cumbersome book. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.